Lord, we, we come before your throne of grace as we have been doing through worship, through song. We come before you, Lord, in anticipation of the reading of your word and the explanation, the preaching, the proclamation of your word. We are asking, Lord, that you would help us In and of ourselves, we have no ability to hear, to receive, and to apply truth. I pray, Father, for those that are here who perhaps are still dead in their transgression and sin, I pray, Lord, that you would cause them to pay attention. I pray, Lord, that you would help them that you would open the eyes of there as well as all of our understanding, Lord. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Give us eyes to see Christ. Give us ears to hear you speak to us, Lord. We acknowledge our sin both privately as well as collectively as a body. Lord, we know your word tells us that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. We know, Lord, that if it weren't for Christ, we could not come to you. But Jesus, you shed your blood on a cross for us. You died in our place. You were willingly punished on a cross so that we would not have to be punished for our own sin. And Lord, we are forgiven. We are washed, we are cleansed, we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so, Lord, we do come to you with boldness. And we ask, Lord, that you would speak, that you would sanctify, that, Lord, you would equip us for ministry. Again, Lord, if there is anyone who has yet to come to faith, we pray for their salvation. We pray, Lord, that you would help me, an unworthy servant, to serve your people this morning. Let us sense your presence. Let us know you are with us. We pray that you would bring glory to your holy name. It is in the name of Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that we pray. Amen. Tomorrow is Memorial Day. Americans remember the soldiers who looked death in the eye and voluntarily gave themselves for freedom's cause. I think of a little boy who at the age of nine witnessed the enemy invade his country. 
the enemy came in and displaced the people from their homes. Many were tortured, women raped. Some were shot, some beheaded, others blown to pieces by grenades. That nine-year-old little boy remembers his people being gathered together and located on an area of the island where they awaited their execution. That little boy knew that he was facing death and that he would inevitably be killed. They stared into the eyes of death. But the day of Antonio's execution never did arrive. The Americans eventually came and reddened the beach with their blood as they battled against the formidable enemy. Those soldiers who stepped foot on the shores of the beach stared death in the face. Many were killed. Antonio remembers the piles of dead bodies as he and his family made their way back to the village upon being liberated. Antonio believes he would have been killed had it not been for the American soldiers landing on the shores of his island to liberate his people. Antonio would never have had the sun standing before you today. And that son would not be asking you today to think about your own death. Our death date is marked on God's heavenly calendar. There is a year, a month, a date, and a time when we all will breathe our final breath and be brought into the immediate presence of the Prince of Peace. Many of us will lie on our deathbed aware that we will soon meet our maker. What will be our final thoughts? How will we feel? What might we say when that day, when that time approaches? Listen to the words of the following men prior to their own death. Adoniram Judson said, I go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from school. I feel so strong in Christ. D.L. Moody said, earth recedes. Heaven opens before me. If this is death, It is sweet. There is no valley here. God is calling me and I must go. John Huss, when given one last chance to recant before being burnt alive at the stake, he said, what I taught with my lips, I seal with my own blood. 
In our passage today, the Apostle Paul is facing the real possibility of death. He is in prison and he awaits trial and possible execution. He is given opportunity to think deeply about his own date with death. And the way he thinks is instructive for us as we prepare for our own date with death. I want to ask you to turn in your copy of God's inerrant, all-sufficient, life-giving word to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 to 20. In those verses, the Apostle Paul says, For I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ shall even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. I am entitling my message, (laughs) And there's a number of titles I could give it. To be quite honest, uh, I'm not sure which is the best one. So here's one example. Paul's certainty in uncertain times. If you want another title, you, you could call it Paul's certainty as he faces the possibility, the real possibility of death. My message is built around eight observations regarding Paul's certainty in uncertain times, revealing what matters most to Paul. Well, let us begin with observation number one. Paul finds himself in an uncertain situation. Paul finds himself in an uncertain situation. In Philippians 1.19, Paul says, For I know that this, this shall turn out for my deliverance. What does this refer to? This refers to the current situation Paul finds himself in. What was Paul's situation? Well, Paul has just mentioned in Philippians 1, 15 to 17, that there were those who were preaching Christ from impure motives, thinking to cause Paul distress in his own imprisonment. Though they were preaching Christ, they saw themselves in competition with Paul and seized upon the opportunity to gain a following. They were consumed with drawing attention away from Paul and toward themselves. It seems they ministered the truth of the gospel for the praise of man. But Paul does not take personal offense at them. Since they are preaching the true gospel, though from impure motives, Paul chooses to rejoice. This is part of the picture of what Paul was dealing with. I think this helps us to begin to answer the question, what is he referring to when he says this? But more broadly, follow with me, more broadly, Paul is in a Roman prison for his commitment to Christ And he is awaiting trial with the real possibility of being executed. 
There is a real chance he may be killed. And in Paul's day, the Roman justice system employed strangling, stoning, burning, boiling in oil, being buried alive, beheading, drowning, death by beast, death by lashing, as well as crucifixion as methods of torture and execution. We do not know, I do not know exactly what form of execution Paul faced. Perhaps Paul himself did not know exactly. What is clear is that Paul, while in prison, faced a future with a measure of uncertainty. He doesn't know what is going to happen to him. Professor Richard Mellick in his commentary says, Paul faced a trial the outcome of which was uncertain. As he writes this part of the letter, Paul is uncertain whether he will live or die. Later on in the letter, he arrives at some certainty, but that's another sermon for another time, and I plan on getting there. But for the time being, he is uncertain whether he will live or die. But despite his uncertain situation, Paul is certain about one thing. He is certain about one thing, and this brings us to observation number two. Paul is certain he will experience deliverance. Paul is absolutely certain he will experience deliverance. We see this as we continue in Philippians 1, 19b. Paul declares, for I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance. The word for deliverance can be translated salvation. Paul knows with certainty that he will experience deliverance, salvation. What will he be delivered from? Paul believes he will be delivered, he will be saved from the possibility of bringing shame upon Christ by his own behavior. I think that helps towards an answer to the question. Again, he believed, he knew with certainty, he will be delivered from the possibility of bringing shame upon Christ by or through his own actions, his own words, his own behavior. I want you to think with me for a moment. He is in prison, facing trial and the possibility of execution. He knows he may be killed in a violent and bloody manner. As Paul stares into the face of death, he wants Christ to be exalted. And in our passage, Paul is confident he will get what he wants. Paul says, I know, I know this will turn out for my deliverance. The Lord will deliver him. The Lord will save him from shaming Christ as he faces trial and possible execution. Professor Melek once again argues in favor of spiritual deliverance. He understands Paul not to be saying, at least at this part of the letter, that he will be delivered from prison. Rather, he understands Paul to be referring to spiritual deliverance. Gordon Fee has a similar take, saying Paul likely refers to his final eschatological salvation. 
Paul is confident that should he die, Christ will be exalted, his faith will be vindicated, and reward will be given. He was facing the future with a smile. And Peter O'Brien agrees as well. He says that the ground for the apostles rejoicing is that he knows he will be vindicated in the heavenly court. He is sure of this, whether he is acquitted by Caesar's tribunal and discharged from prison or not. Paul knows that in his captivity, he has been divinely appointed for the defense of the gospel. You see that in verse 16. And Peter O'Brien adds, like Job, he can count on God's faithfulness for his final vindication. Like Job, he can count, he can depend on God's faithfulness for his final vindication. Take note of O'Brien's Job reference. A number of commentators agree that Paul likely has in mind Job's words in Job 13, 16, where he says, this also will be for my salvation. This will turn out for my deliverance. For the godless man may not come before his presence. I will be vindicated. Job is responding to his friends who have tried him and they have found him guilty. They mean no ill will, but they are convinced Job is guilty of sin and therefore he is experiencing divine discipline. Yet Job is confident in his good standing before the Lord. He is convinced of his salvation and that someday he will come before the immediate presence of the Lord and he will be vindicated. Job is not acting arrogantly. He is not being proud. He is simply convinced that his suffering has nothing to do with any so-called sin in his own life. And Job is correct. Job believes that the situation he finds himself in, as he says, will turn out for my salvation. He believes he will be vindicated by the Lord. Paul perhaps has this perspective in mind, and again, theologians uh, say that, that Paul is referencing this passage in Job, and so Paul perhaps has this perspective, this Job-like perspective in mind when he says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. As he anticipates a trial and the possibility of execution, he feels confident he will be delivered. He will be delivered from shame. He will be delivered from fear. He will be bold during trial. He will have freedom of speech and he will proclaim Christ. And along the way, Christ will in fact be exalted in his life. Christ will be honored and he will be lifted up. Paul is completely convinced that should he be executed, he will be vindicated. He will experience the final and full deliverance that he anticipates his salvation will come to its final completion. This is how he faces death, brothers and sisters. And this is consistent with Paul's declaration 
to the Philippians earlier in 1-6, chapter 1, verse 6, where he says, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, he will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul now applies the same confidence to himself. He is believing by faith that his Lord will see him through. Paul's example is one to learn from and for us to follow. God may not deliver his choice instruments from suffering and death, but he will deliver his choice instruments through suffering and death. Paul knows this, and we are instructed and encouraged by his own example. And Paul presents himself as an example for his readers to learn from and be encouraged by because Paul knows they themselves are faced with suffering as well. In Philippians 1.29, a few verses later, Paul says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It has been granted to you that you will suffer for his sake. He's communicating this as if it were a good thing. Again, Paul is one who would look to the future and smile. Paul was one who, as he stares death in the face, he was able to have joy. He was able to have confidence. He is certain he will experience deliverance. And Paul goes on to provide reasons for his confidence. And this brings us to observation number three. Paul's deliverance will come through the prayers of the Philippians. His deliverance will come in part right through the prayers of his Philippian brethren. The Apostle Paul says, I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers. Through your prayers. Paul here acknowledges and affirms the prayers of the Philippians on his own behalf. Paul assures the Philippians that the Lord hears their prayers. He hears, he listens, he is attentive to their prayers. The Philippians were aware of Paul's situation. They knew that he awaits trial and possible execution. They were praying for Paul. I wonder what it would have been like to be at a prayer meeting in the Philippian church and to listen to the brethren crying out to the Lord on behalf of the apostle Paul. Lord, be with Paul. Oh Lord, give strength and boldness to Paul. Help Paul to persevere through his imprisonment. And Lord, should it be your will for Paul to be executed, let him exalt you in his body. And Paul knows they are praying for him and therefore he feels confident he will experience deliverance, the kind of deliverance he hopes for. Child of God, saint of God, Christian, never, never underestimate the significance of your prayers for the saints. The one to whom you pray is powerful. He is powerful. 
Your prayers serve as a lifeline for other believers. Your prayers to the Lord on behalf of God's people promote perseverance in their lives. Paul persevered in part because of the prayers of the Philippians on his behalf. I recently, uh, a couple weeks back, attended Aunt Jan's memorial service. Aunt Jan, she is Marcy's Aunt Jan, married to Uncle Fred, Marcy's uncle, her dad's brother. I attended Aunt Jan's memorial service. She had communicated that she was ready to move on and to be with the Lord. And it was not long after that the Lord, in fact, brought her home to be with him in glory. My wife and I, we knew throughout the years that she and Uncle Fred prayed for us every day. She prayed for us daily for decades, for decades. At her memorial service a couple weeks back, several people shared how Jan would tell them she was praying for them and their spouse and their children every day. She knew them all by name. She remembered little children when when they came into this world and growing up in their family and now they had moved on and, and Aunt Jan would be praying for her friends and for her friends' children and she would let them know from Lord's Day to Lord's Day and she would ask them questions. How is little Johnny doing or how is your adult son Johnny doing? And it was clear to people that she was attentive to their needs and she was in prayer for them. I want to add that Uncle Fred is still alive. He is still here, this side of glory. And it was shared also at this memorial service, though it was for Jan, um, it was shared how he has been telling folks he, he is praying for them every day with a qualification. Two times a day. Is it any wonder why their pastor, Walter Price of Fellowship Church in Beaumont, shared that Fred and Jan were among the godliest people he had ever met? We will never know. We will never know this side of heaven how many folks have experienced deliverance through their prayers through the prayers of Uncle Fred and Aunt Jan. The Apostle Paul was confident in his own deliverance through the prayers of folks like Uncle Fred and Aunt Jan. But there is another reason Paul feels confident he will be delivered, and this brings us to observation number four. Paul's deliverance will come through the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul believes that his deliverance will come through the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says. For I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and through the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Paul knows that as a believer, God the Spirit indwells him. God, the Holy Spirit, has taken up residence in Paul. He knows that the body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul knows that God, the Spirit, lives in him and empowers him to be what God calls him to be. 
Paul also knows that the Spirit cries out to God in groanings that are too deep for words. The Philippians are not the only ones praying for Paul. The indwelling Spirit prays as well. Paul knows this. The Father and Son, God the Father and God the Son, they hear the Spirit's cries. Paul knows he is in good hands. He knows that when he stands trial, when he stands trial, he believes the Spirit will empower him with gospel words. Paul knows that should he be executed, the indwelling Spirit will empower him to exalt Christ. He believes that he who began a good work in him will perfect that good work until the day of Christ Jesus. Paul is convinced that God will complete his work. And Paul is confident that in trial, as well as in the face of execution, God will keep him from faltering. Saints of God, be reminded that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. God the Spirit dwells. He lives in you. Our sovereign, wise, good, and loving God has blessed you with the provision of the Holy Spirit. Through the power of the Spirit, you can endure whatever may come your way. You can endure whatever God in his sovereignty may allow to come your way. I do not know what you are dealing with right now, nor do I know what you might be faced with in the future. But I do know that if you are in Christ, the Spirit of God lives in you. He prays for you. He directs and guides you, and he empowers you to exalt the Lord even as you face difficult days. Even in the face of your future death, he empowers you, he enables you that you might be able, whether in life or in death, to exalt the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Paul believes and he is convinced that his deliverance will come through the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And then this brings us to observation number five. Number five, Paul's deliverance involves the certainty that he will not be put to shame. His deliverance involves his certainty that he will not be put to shame. Paul goes on in verse 20 to say his confidence is, according to my earnest expectation, and hope, a confident assurance of God to be faithful to his word, not a wishful thinking, but a confidence, earnest expectation and hope, he says, that I shall not be put to shame in anything. Shame has the idea of dishonor. Paul does not want to do anything to bring shame or dishonor to himself as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to honor the one he claims to follow. Paul is ultimately concerned about the Lord Jesus Christ. 
He knows that it would be shameful for him to fail to uphold the name of the Lord as he faces trial and possible execution. This verse tells us Paul is confident he will not be put to shame in anything. He is confident when he stands trial, he will not be put to shame. He's confident should he be executed, he will not be put to shame. This verse also implies and serves as a warning that it is possible to behave. As a believer, it is possible to behave in a shameful and dishonoring manner. For Paul, failure to proclaim Christ, failure to uphold the name of Christ, failure to answer questions truthfully and boldly when standing before trial, Failure to face death in a courageous manner is shameful and it is dishonoring. Paul knows this, but he is certain he will not behave in such a shameful manner. But listen carefully to Paul's words. I shall not be put to shame in anything, in anything. This seems to be his attitude in life. Paul is saying that there is nothing that can be done to him that will result in shame. There are no words. There are no accusations. There are no threats. There are no bribes. There are no forms of torture. There are no methods of execution that will result in Paul and the Lord he loves being put to shame. Absolute confidence. I know this shall turn out for my deliverance. And brothers and sisters, we too, like Paul, can trust in the Lord. Like Paul, we can face death with confidence that our Lord will deliver us from shame. He will deliver us from bringing shame upon ourselves and in the process bringing shame to the Savior that we claim to serve. And if we can trust the Lord with the big things, we can trust him with the small things as well. We can make it our aim not to behave shamefully in anything we do or regarding anything we face. And I want to be sensitive here. I know that the reality is because of indwelling sin that though we are children of God in whom the Spirit dwells, we struggle as we journey through this life. But I also want us to be reminded that God is there, the Spirit is present, and He can cause us to overcome. He can cause us to be Paul-like and we can face the future with a smile and in all things we can bring glory and honor and praise to God. We can exalt him in our body. As far as this point is concerned, it is the negative side of Paul's deliverance. He knows he will not be put to shame. But there is a positive side to his deliverance as well. And with this, let us turn to observation number six. Paul's deliverance involves the certainty that he will have boldness. Paul's deliverance involves the certainty that he will, in fact, have 
boldness. Listen to what he says in verse 20. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but by way of contrast, right? But that with all boldness, Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body. Paul fully expects and he confidently hopes that rather than behaving in a shameful manner, he will have all boldness. To have boldness means to have freedom in speaking, confidence, courage. This is important to Paul. He wants to stand strong and he wants to display boldness for Christ in the name of Christ. He did not always have such boldness. He did not always have such boldness. He has had his weaker moments. And perhaps you recall uh, on Paul's second missionary trip when he came to Corinth. I've referenced this in the past before, but I want to reference it again. When he came to Corinth, he tells the Corinthians right, in a letter that he writes later, that he came to them in weakness and fear and much trembling. 1 Corinthians 2.3. Paul likely was tired of getting beat up, thrown into prison, and run out of cities. When he came to the wicked city of Corinth, he was tempted to walk away. He needed more than anything else. He needed an encounter with Almighty God. He needed a word from the Lord that would encourage him to continue ministering. And the Lord knew this. And the Lord, in his grace, spoke to Paul one night in a vision. And consider the word of the Lord to Paul as recorded in Acts Chapter 18, verses 9 to 10. The Lord said to Paul in this vision, Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And I submit to you that this was a turning point in the ministry of the Apostle Paul. He needed this more than anything else. He needed a word from the Lord, and the Lord decided to give him such a word. And so I want us to to break this down a little bit. Breaking it down, do not be afraid any longer. Paul was afraid, and his fear threatened to cripple him. But go on speaking and, and do not be silent. He needed commands from the Lord. He, he needed to be commanded to speak and to, and to not be silent. Evidently, he was tempted to stop speaking about his Savior. Imagine that, the great apostle Paul. The Lord says, for I am with you. Did he need to hear that? Did he not know that? Evidently, the Lord saw fit to tell him something he knew, to remind him um, I am with you. Paul needed a reminder that the Lord is with him. Uh, This is the very point Paul makes later in Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, right? As he commands his readers who were threatened themselves with persecution to not be anxious about anything. What is the antidote to our anxiety? 
knowing and believing that the Lord is near, trusting in the nearness of the Lord. The Lord knows that this is a great antidote. And and so the Lord says to Paul at a crucial time in his ministry, I am with you. I am with you. This is what the scripture tells us, right? This is what the scripture teaches us, brothers and sisters, that the Lord is present, an ever-present help in time of trouble, that the Lord is with us. And lo, I am with you always, even until the very end of the age. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The fact of the matter is, is the Lord is here even now as I am speaking. He is present. He is here. Some of us know that. Some of us believe that. Some of us affirm it. Some of us are living on the basis of that truth, but for others of us, perhaps not. He is with us. And take note of what the Lord then says to Paul, again, in this vision by the night as he speaks to Paul while in his early part of the ministry at Corinth. He says, no man will attack you in order to harm you. No man. Paul, I've got your back. I will protect you. I am not going to allow you, at least in this city, to be harmed. Paul was afraid of any more suffering. He was not interested in getting hurt again. And the Lord knows this, and he assures Paul that insofar as his ministry in Corinth, he would not suffer physical harm. And the Lord finally goes on to say, I have many people in this city. This is the Lord's way of telling Paul that he will bear fruit. In court. And by the way, that is extremely important to Paul. A little bit later in our Philippian passage, he, he says, if, basically, if the Lord keeps me alive, I know that this will mean fruitful labor for me. Bearing fruit for Paul was extremely important, right? To live is Christ and to die is gain is Paul's perspective on life. I have many people in this city Sinners will turn to the Savior. As wicked as the Corinthians are, many will be born again. When in Corinth, Paul needed a word from the Lord. He needed this type of encouragement. He also needed to know that he would not be harmed. But here we are, years later. And Paul does not seem concerned anymore about being harmed. His concern, rather, is for boldness as he faces trial and possible execution. More than anything, Paul wants to stand boldly for King Jesus. And Paul is convinced that the Lord will give him the boldness he desires to have. I am so glad to see recorded for us in Scripture Paul's progress over time. When he arrived in Corinth, he was afraid. He was tempted to retreat. But now he is in a Roman prison, and his only concern is to glorify the Lord all the way to his dying breath, and he is confident that he will in fact have such a boldness should that time come. It seems to me he was facing death with a smile. 
But there is more that Paul is concerned of regarding his deliverance. And this brings us to observation number seven. Paul's deliverance involves the certainty that Christ will be exalted in his body, whether he lives or whether he dies. I'm not exactly sure what is going to happen, but I can tell you this. This much I know. King Jesus will be exalted in my body. He will be honored. They can do what they want, but he will be exalted in my body. Paul is confident as he faces an unknown future that Christ will be exalted. Christ will be declared to be great through his words, through his lips, and through his actions. Paul knows Christ will be magnified in his life whether he lives or whether he dies. He may get beheaded, but Christ will be exalted. He may get crucified, but Christ will be exalted. Paul does not know at this point whether he will live or die, but he does know that Christ will be exalted. This is what Paul aims at when he says earlier, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul knows that he will be delivered from his own fear. He will be delivered from his own sin, delivered from his own fleshly desire to protect his own life, delivered from his own failure to have boldness. He will be delivered from bringing shame upon himself by his failure to stand firm for the Lord. He knows that no matter what, Christ will be exalted in his life. Perhaps Paul thought back to when he was not a believer. He had plenty of jail time inside of which to do a lot of thinking. And perhaps he did on occasion while in the cell think back to when he was not a believer. He remembers Stephen. Stephen was a man of faith and full of the Spirit, and Paul recalls the day when Stephen preached the gospel to a crowd. Men responded by pelting Stephen with stones, but Stephen stood strong, and he prayed for his enemies. While being stoned, Stephen beheld his Lord standing at the right hand of the Father, and his face was aglow with the joy of Christ as he was beaten to death by those who hated Christ. Stephen was the first person in the age of the church to be killed for his commitment to Christ. And the apostle Paul was present and he was giving hearty approval of the bloody death of Stephen. Since that day, Paul came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he never forgot Stephen. He never forgot how the Lord empowered Stephen to exalt Christ as he died a martyr's death. And Paul knows that the Lord will empower him to stand strong as well. This passage reveals his greatest concern, that Christ is exalted, whether he lives or whether he dies. This was at the top of Paul's list of priorities. 
high on the list, number one on the list, that Christ be exalted in my life. What is at the top of your list of priorities? Is it a move out of the state? A bigger house, a new car, personal strength, muscles, health, beauty, good looks, more money, a better job, advancement in career? What is it that you think about the most? Is it your greatest passion that Christ is exalted in your life no matter what? We see that Paul cared less for his own life than he did for the exaltation of Christ in and through his life. And with this, let us turn to one final observation. Number eight, Paul's certainty of deliverance serves as the reason he rejoices. Paul's certainty of deliverance serves as the reason he rejoices. Our passage begins with the preposition for. I want you to look back at verse 19, where Paul says, for I know that this shall turn out for my deliverance. The, the preposition for links back to what Paul has previously declared. At the end of verse 18, Paul makes the same declaration two times. Two times Paul declares, I rejoice. I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice, right? Two times. And by the way, this word rejoice or joy is a critical feature of the letter. A huge part of what Paul wants to accomplish in the lives of the people of God is for them to be able to rejoice in the Lord always. And he says, again, I say rejoice. Being joyful in the Lord is, is it's important in Paul's mind. He's modeling it to himself, and he wants the people of God to model it as well. So he says, I rejoice. In the most trying of times, Paul rejoices. Lord, help me. Lord, help us. Uh, in the most trying of times, he's rejoicing. Meditate on that for a moment. He is in chains, but his heart is not in chains. He is filled with joy, inexpressible and full of glory. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 12, Paul explains to his readers that his circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Paul is in prison, and as a result, the whole Praetorian Guard and everyone else has heard the gospel. Guess who's telling them about Christ? It's Paul while in prison. Furthermore, Paul says that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, they have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. And so you see what's happening? God is using his jail time to advance the gospel, and Paul is pumped up about it. He is rejoicing about it. Paul also, as we continue in this chapter 1, 
you know, as we, you know, on our way to the verses I've, I've been preaching on, he indicates that those preaching the gospel can be divided into two groups, two groups. There are those preaching Christ from goodwill and from an attitude, a spirit, a heart of love. They are rightly motivated, but there are others who are preaching Christ, Paul says, from envy, strife, selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my own imprisonment. But note that Paul makes it clear that they are in fact preaching Christ, though from the wrong heart motive. They are preaching the true gospel. And Paul delivers his response in verse 18. He says, what then? How should I respond? What should my response to this be? There are these that are preaching the gospel from false motives, seeking to do harm to me. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, he says, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. That's his first reference to rejoicing here, right? In this I rejoice, that Christ is being proclaimed. Paul rejoices in the fact that Christ is proclaimed. He rejoices in the fact that the gospel message, the only message able to save and transform vile sinners from the inside out, that message is being proclaimed. He knows that the message in and of itself has the power to save. Paul knows that even impure vessels preaching the true gospel can result in sinners being saved. Do you, do you understand that? Do you realize that? Again, impure vessels preaching the true gospel can result in sinners being saved. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Now, don't misunderstand me. I am not at all saying by saying that, that how we live our lives isn't important. It's very important. But I just want you to understand that it is the gospel that is the power of God onto salvation. We need not be perfect to proclaim the gospel. God will use the gospel message despite ourselves. The objective truth of the gospel, Christ crucified for sinners, is a powerful message that has power to save and transform all who believe. Perhaps the person who led you to Christ has since then abandoned the faith. Remember, you were saved, not by the person, but by the gospel that was preached by that person. At the same time, let us never be content with proclaiming Christ from hearts filled with impurity. Let us be those who preach Christ out of holiness, out of a heartfelt reverence for the Lord. Let us be those who proclaim Christ out of hearts filled with love and purity of motive. Paul emphatically declares that he rejoices in the fact that Christ is proclaimed, and he says, and in this I rejoice. But he continues, and he again declares, yes, and I will rejoice. Again, the topic of joy is an important topic to Paul. He says, and I will rejoice. And then he gives the reason for, 
I will rejoice for I know that this, the situation I find myself in, it will turn out for my deliverance. Christ will be exalted in my life. Do you see that? That Paul's joy is rooted in his certainty of deliverance. And his deliverance is not that he will be tried and set free. His deliverance is that Christ will be exalted in his body, whether by life or by death. And there should be no doubt that Paul's faith is buttressed by the word of God. He, he knew scripture well, and, and he drew deeply from the well of God's word. As he walks through the valley of the shadow of death, Paul will not fear. He knows he walks not alone. The Lord is with him. Later in Philippians 4, 5, Paul declares the Lord is near. He knows that his Lord carries a rod and staff. His Lord is in control of the situation. Paul affirms the sovereignty of his Lord. He is comforted by his Lord. He sits at the table prepared for him. His head is anointed with oil, the oil of gladness, and Paul's cup is filled to overflowing. Brothers and sisters, Paul lacks no joy. While in the cell and awaiting trial and the possibility of execution, he feels assured. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all of the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. He is rejoicing and his joy is connected to the certainty of his salvation, his deliverance, that Christ will be exalted whether he lives or whether he dies. And so we have made eight observations regarding Paul's certainty of deliverance as he faces the possibility of execution. One, he finds himself in an uncertain situation. He faces trial and he may be put to death. Two, Paul is certain that he will experience deliverance, deliverance from fear and shame should he be killed for his commitment to Christ. Three, Paul's deliverance will come through the prayers of the Philippians. Four, Paul's deliverance will come through the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ. Five, Paul's deliverance involves the certainty that he will not be put to shame. Six, his deliverance involves the certainty that he will have all boldness. Seven, his deliverance involves the certainty that Christ will be exalted in his body, whether he lives or whether he dies. And eight, Paul's certainty of deliverance serves as the reason he rejoices. In working our way through these eight observations, we learn from Paul that the most important thing is that Christ is exalted in our life, whether we live or whether we die. I would like to ask, I would like to address one final question before we draw this sermon to an end. Let me ask the question this way. Actually, there's a number of ways. It's, it's kind of the same question stated differently, I suppose. But, but from where does Paul find the fuel for his fire? Where does that fuel come from? What is the fuel? What makes him tick? How can a man stare death in the face with such joy? 
Why is it that Paul's primary passion is the proclamation and the exaltation of the Lord Jesus? And I submit that the answer is rooted in his understanding of who his God is, what his God has done. He maintained a magnified view of his God. Such a view was first embraced when Paul was knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus, where he had every intention of persecuting the church. But Paul's plans were thwarted. The Lord grabbed a hold of Paul and transformed him from a persecutor of the church to a proclaimer of Christ. He came to grips with the grace of God and his life was changed. Brothers and sisters, there is power in the gospel to transform the vilest of sinners. There is power in the gospel to change you and to make you a person that lives for the glory of God. There is power in the gospel message. And over the course of time, Paul would grow in his wonder of Jesus the Nazarene. And we catch a glimpse of this a few verses later in Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Oh, read through those verses. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. I cannot think of a passage more powerful when it comes to unpacking and explaining the humiliation of Christ followed by the exaltation of Christ. Take time to read through that. He says, though he were God, Yet he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being found in the likeness of men. Uh, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is what theologians say is the humiliation of Christ. We need to understand what God gave up in order to come into this world for our benefit. He, he came into this world and died a bloody death on a cross for us. He is the ultimate example of one who stared death in the face with a smile. Who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and he scorned the shame of it. Because he had you in his mind. He knew that through his blood, he would purchase your salvation, my salvation. We are saved, brothers and sisters, by grace, through faith in Christ alone, not by any works of righteousness that we can do. We are saved only by his finished work. Our works has nothing to do with our justified status before a holy God. He was humiliated. His humiliation on our behalf and then followed up God chose to exalt him. Therefore, he was highly exalted and he was given the name. God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every names, uh, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow uh, in the heavens and on the earth and under the earth and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, curios, master to the glory of God the Father. He is the Lord. He reigns. Is there any wonder that the Apostle Paul faced death with a smile? His Lord went ahead of him and blazed the trail and is at the right hand of the Father. And Paul knows that no matter what, whether I live or whether I die, Christ will be exalted. He will be exalted. That is his deliverance. 
That is his deliverance. And by the grace of God, may our heart's greatest desire, like Paul, be to so know Christ that our only concern throughout the course of our earthly lives is that Christ is exalted. That is the only thing that matters. And as the day draws near, And as we take our final breaths, may we look into eternity with a smile and may we echo the words of Paul in the very next verse, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I pray that you believe that. And I pray that that strengthens you on your journey from brokenness to wholeness through the gospel all the way to gospel glory. Would you please pray with me? Let us look to the Lord. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father. Oh, Lord, I pray that There was not too much of me that got in the way. I think I perhaps got a bit excited. That, Lord, you are so good. That, Lord, you would become a man. And you would die the death that we deserve to die. And I am so thankful that the Father highly exalted you and gave you the name that is above every name and that Lord every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father in the meantime help us to be about your business In the meantime, Lord, as we live life, let the life that we live mean fruitful labor for us. And when we transition into eternity, Lord, we look forward to that day when we will behold you face to face. And we will know you fully and perfectly, even as we are fully known by you. Until then, we press on by the grace of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.